Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. This is, as most of you uh, will know, is our final show uh, before we go on our hiatus. And for all of our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere, of course, this will be our summer uh, hiatus. And for all of our listeners in the Southern Hemisphere, this will be our winter hiatus. Um, so we will come back uh, to you live in September. Uh, so a good time for you to catch up on the hundreds of podcasts that we have here of the Nonprofit Coach available to you at tedhart.com. Uh, you can take those along with you if you're going on summer break or winter break. Uh, they are available for download and listening through podcasts on your iPod or iPad. So you can uh, uh, take us with you. Find us all at tedhart.com. Uh, as always here on the Nonprofit Coach, you can join us over in the chat room. I see some folks over in the chat room. Uh, you can ask questions there, so I'm happy to take your questions. Uh, or you can call in when we get to our page two expert today, and that's at 347-324-3080. Or if you're super shy and you would just like to get a question in to our guest, Linda Lysakowski, today, uh, you can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we're going to start off with page one news. And our newsmaker today is George Hamilton. George Hamilton comes to us from uh, CFRE, and this is the time for the CFRE Minute, the final CFRE Minute, until we come back for the September live shows. Uh, welcome back here to the nonprofit coach, George Hamilton. I understand that you've got some very big news. Uh, you had something released today, uh, so that's truly newsworthy. Uh, and you have a brand-new service available at CFRE. Uh, so welcome back, and tell us all about it in the CFRE Minute. George Hamilton. Thanks very much, Ted. Appreciate you having us again. Um, and you're absolutely right. Uh, first, the, the, the news, news release of the day um, is that the 2014 CFRE International Annual Report has been published on our website, um, and it's available for download and review um, there on the website. There's a news and events item for it, and it's also available in, in the drop-down menu under about ACNM, uh, excuse me, under about CFRE. Um, some of the highlights from that that I just want to share real quick with your listeners. Um, 
it was really uh, as as our our board chair Phil Schumacher described it a, a leap forward year for for CFRE International in 2014, um, both from a partnership perspective and from a, an overall growth perspective. Um, during the course of the year, we we um, formed a new partnership with the European Fundraising Association that we talked about on the show um, last fall um, to advance best practices in ethical fundraising across Europe. Um, we also partnered with a new testing. Um, venue in Pearson View, um, which is was going which is going very nicely and has uh, greatly expanded access to the to the credential in terms of testing site locations, and in addition um, has really expanded the services. Um, but I think the biggest thing in terms of leap forward is is the growth overall for the credential um, and the organization. Overall, we ended the year with 5451 certified um, fundraising executives. That's a 3% growth over end of year 2013. Um, but we saw even greater growth in terms of initial certifications. Um, initial applications for certification rose to 900 and, uh, excuse me, 719, which was a 9% increase over 2013. Um, the exams administered, meaning the folks who actually sat for the exams, went up to 731. That was a 12% increase. Um, we had 573 new certifications certificates uh, certified in 2014, um, and recertifications also were quite high at 1,551, uh, excuse me, 41, um, which is well over an 80% retention rate. So those were all good, really strong growth numbers for us, um, and they actually resulted in a positive net revenue for the organization of almost $130,000 in 2014, um, which is money that is re reinvested into the certification program. So it was, it was a really strong year um, for CFRE International and the CFRE Credential in 2014, and you know, we're very pleased to, to publish um, that annual report and share, share it with our constituents. That is really exciting to have the uh, the annual report provide uh, such insight into how the credential is growing around the world uh, and how you know strong CFRE is, which is good for everyone who holds the credential to make sure that uh, the the uh, governing body is uh, financially sound. Um, give us a little bit more about the continuing education calendar and how you expect that's likely to be used. Well, that's a, that's a, a, a real improvement um, for our in terms of the services we give to both the CFRE credentialed fundraisers, the the applicants, but also um, our our partners in in the fundraising field who are providing educational programming um, that fundraisers need to achieve and maintain their certification. Um, for a long time, CFRE has actually had an an approved provider program where where providers of education um, could submit their education to be um, pre-approved for CFRE points um, for the CFRE application. Um, and we've always published a, a list of, of who those providers are that had, you know, had submitted education programming during the course of the year. Unfortunately, what we had never had before and what we're really excited to be launching um, in July is a searchable online calendar where, where CFREs and applicants can go on our website and plug in information about the education that they're looking for and receive results back from the calendar of the individual approved educational offerings. Um, so rather, rather than just saying these are the companies that are providing education, we're now giving CFREs and applicants a method to find the individual educational programming that most meets their needs at that time. Well, this is a brilliant uh, advance because you can imagine uh, two beneficiaries of this new service. One, of course, are those who are engaged in seeking the CFRE designation or renewing uh, the CFRE designation now have a one-stop shop to be able to find the educational outlets that they need and desire to have as part of their application process. But it's also a great way for those who are planning the education, the conferences and the training that have the certification uh, to be able to have people have another resource to actually find them. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know, there are going to be various ways that, that – um, People are going to be able to search the calendar. Um, they'll be able to search on program dates, uh, program type, i.e., is the education in person or online, or is it a hybrid? Um, locations for in-person education will be searchable, um, as well as the specific CFRE knowledge domains that are covered by that piece of educational programming. Um, 
in, and in addition, also keyword searches are available as well. And uh, will this also have a an archival uh, feature as well that uh, folks can take a look at what has happened in the past so that they may get some ideas of the kinds of training that's available? Um, the programs will be archived at, at, the t at, at the time of launch. Past programs will not be searchable. Um, only, only upcoming programs will be searchable, but the, the programs that are entered into the calendar going forward will be, will be archived. Well, I think this is a, a terrific resource for the entire uh, community uh, and hopefully is, is going to be uh, a way for folks to be able to maybe speed up their certification process by knowing exactly who's providing the training. Exactly, and, and hopefully it will, will um, extend the number of, of companies that are actually taking the, taking the time to, to submit their educational programming for prior review by CFRE International um, so, that, so that folks seeking the credential can, can be assured that that programming has been, been reviewed and is applicable to their CFRE certification. Well, if you can provide more registrants, I think you're going to have a lot of very happy trainers out there uh, in the uh, in the nonprofit sector. So, uh, well done again, CFRE innovation leading to even a better way for the certification to grow. Uh, I want to wish you, uh, since I, I think you're in the northern hemisphere, I wish you a wonderful summer, uh, and say that uh, we uh, expect uh, great things from CFRE in the fall, and we look forward to having you back or another representative uh, from CFRE here for the CFRE Minute starting again in September. All right. Thank you very much, Ted. Appreciate you having us, and great. Uh, have a great, great summer break. You bet. Thank you, George. That's George Hamilton for CFRE, uh, providing us with a very detailed update on a lot of really great things happening over there, and we could not be happier uh, with the leadership and what they are doing to help expand uh, CFRE. Uh, of course, we encourage all of our listeners to seek the certification, uh, and you can find that information at CFRE.org. With that, uh, I have a very, very exciting uh, show for you today. Um, we, uh, I'm going to say maybe save the, the, the best for last here before we go in to our summer-slash-winter break, uh, because today I have Linda Lysakowski with us, and so we're going to head right on over to page two. Today, I welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach, a favorite here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, Linda Lysakowski is the president of Linda Lysakowski LLC. Linda is one of just over 100 professionals worldwide that holds the Advanced Certified Fundraising Executive. We were just talking to, about CFRE. This is the A CFRE designation. Uh, this is uh, something that Linda and I have in common. We both uh, hold this designation, uh, although she has a little bit more experience in the field than I do. She has over 30 years in the development field uh, and has managed many, many capital campaigns, helped many organizations achieve their development goals, and has trained more than 27,000 professionals, although I, I bet that, that number is a little bit dated because I, I think she's probably surpassed uh, that number by quite a bit because she travels all over. She provides training in Mexico, Canada, Egypt, Bermuda, and most of the 50 United States. The good news is she's right here with us here live on The Nonprofit Coach. Welcome back, Linda Lysakowski. Thanks, Ted. It's great to be back. And I, I wanted to say first that I think it was really exciting to hear the news from CFRE because I have provided a number of training programs that are eligible for CFRE credits. And I think it's great that participants will now have this calendar. I was so excited to hear that um, when George reported on that because I think it's so great to be able to look at a, one place and say, oh, we're going to go get the training because people are constantly contacting me and saying, well, where could I get training in this? I, I feel weak in this, and I'm afraid to take my CFRE test until I have some training. So I think that's a, a really great thing to hear. I was really pleased to hear about that. 
Well, Linda, you know our, our producer, Diane Peach, is always making sure that we have the cutting-edge information here on the Nonprofit Coach, and uh, that's why she wanted to make sure that uh, before we went into this uh, break period, before we come back in September, that we were able to get that information out, because I agree with you, that's a, a big advance uh, for everybody involved, both the educators and those seeking CFRE uh, renewal or certification. But uh, Linda, how exciting. You always bring us uh, great topics of information, but what you've brought to us today, uh, I, I don't think we've uh, quite had before, uh, and that is um, a second edition for a book yet to be published. It's going to be published soon, so I want to get all the information. Uh, but for everybody who's listening today, uh, we're going to be talking about asking styles, harness your personal fundraising power, second edition by Linda Lysakowski. Um, and Linda, in, uh, in the draft of, uh, of your book, of course, uh, you, give, uh, you give credit uh, where credit is due, and that is that we had Andrea Kilstadt here on the Nonprofit Coach um, when the first edition came out, um, and she devised the four asking styles um, and has been, of course, teaching and training uh, successful fundraisers uh, for many years. But uh, you're bringing us here uh, the second edition. Um, so let me start off by just asking you, why a second edition? Uh, why now? Um, and what are we going to find new as we start talking about um, the, the four different areas of, uh, that we can explore today in terms of how you can be successful in fundraising? And that's knowing your asking style. So Linda, take it away. Well, I, I think that's a really good question, and it's very unusual to see a second edition come out with a different author from the first edition. Usually, the way second editions come out, and I can speak from my fundraising for the genius, I published, I guess, the first edition about four years ago, and then last year, I think it was, I felt like there were some things that needed to be updated and uh, rearranged somewhat within the book, so we decided to do a second edition. And usually these things come about because either the author or the publisher says, gosh, some things need updating, or I wish I would have told them about this and I didn't get it in the first book. Um, in this case, it was the publisher who noted that there were several areas that weren't really so much missing, but things that could be enhanced. And one of the big changes in this book is we took these four asking styles and compared them with some other books that Charity Channel Press has published and some other authors, and we asked for their insight into how these asking styles would fit into what they have talked about in their books. And it's really a, a mixture of different books that might appeal to different people. The first author that we asked to contribute to this was Meredith Hanks because we realized she's probably the premier author on topics relating to fundraising research. And, you know, we think of, and as we get into the four styles, we'll talk more about this, but we think people who are analytical are really good at research, but maybe people who are more intuitive and don't like the research, and I have to say I'm one of those people who, even though I'm analytical, I do not like spending a lot of time on research. But we asked Meredith to look at all four of these asking styles and offer the readers some suggestions on how each one of them might approach research for funding. Um, the other author that we included was Ken Stroman, who I believe you might have also had on your show. To we talk have. The book Asking About Asking. And again, his book really talks a lot about what kind of questions lead up to the actual ask for money. And we thought, well, different personality styles would approach that aspect differently. So we asked Kent to reflect on, you know, how these different asking styles might react differently to asking about asking. And then finally, Margaret Gulick and I have another book which isn't published yet, but it'll be coming out probably later this summer as well, called The New Donor. And, it, and in this book, we talk a lot about how donors like to be treated and how they like to be recognized and acknowledged. So we gave our insights as to how different asking styles might approach the recognition factor. 
Um, the other thing that was added to this that probably makes it a little bit different uh, is a few more stories about real-life people who fit the different asking styles and how they approached fundraising. And then the last chapter of the book, which Andrea spent a lot of time talking about boards, but we realized that there were other people who did fundraising besides boards and staff members, and that's the fundraising volunteers who I'm, I've always really believed have an important role in fundraising. So groups like your development committee and your campaign cabinets and other fundraising volunteers that you might have, they also have asking styles. We all have asking styles. So we wanted to just expand on it a little bit. Um, the book is not, it's probably about the same length as the original book, and certainly we didn't make any changes in the asking styles themselves because Andrea really did a great job in nailing down these four different asking styles. But we just tried to give readers a little bit more practical advice on no matter what style they are, how they can use it at every step of their fundraising from doing the research to thanking the donor at the end. I, what, reading through this book, I, one of the things that really rang true for me um, is that this is sort of the anti-cookie-cutter book um, <laughs> where you're training you, – We, you know, you and I have, you know, a couple of decades or more of training under our belts in, in best practices and how to succeed. And we lecture at very large conferences and we provide very small uh, workshops and how you can succeed. And I think what, what this book draws out and what's, what's so important um, about this book is that you are not a cookie cutter or a clone of the development officer that's either training you or is at the desk next to you. Uh, and that, that what this book helps you do is, is identify what is your authentic self as a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important, not only for the fundraisers themselves, but I think it's also important for the people who are hiring fundraisers. And you've probably seen this. I know I've seen it over the years that I've been in this field, especially when I'm working with a group that is hiring as very first development officer, and I hear words like, oh, well, he's a great salesperson. He was in real estate, so he'll be good at fundraising. <laughs> and I actually had one client one time who was a private school, and they hired a development um, officer based on the fact that as a parent, she sold more cookies in their annual cookie drive than anybody else. <laughs> okay. And I think we get this impression in our head that, to be a good fundraiser, you have to be a super-driven salesperson and high energy and, you know, outgoing and extroverted. And I think that's not true at all because I think if we really give some thought to this, we can all think of people who are fantastic fundraisers who are not the outgoing, extroverted people. So I, I think that's what really drew me to this book. And it, it tied in kind of nicely with my fundraising as a career, what are you crazy? Because I think I've seen so much of that where people do hire someone because they're a great salesperson and they're really extroverted and they know everybody in town and they can talk to everybody in town. But that's not always what gets the job done in fundraising. And you probably have some examples that maybe you've thought of of people you know who are not fitting that super salesperson mold. Well, I do, but I think what's so powerful about uh, this book, and I'm so glad that you have taken sort of this, uh, you know, this key, this core concept, um, and, and, and I, I, almost, I almost wonder, um, you know, if calling it a second edition um, is a little bit of a misnomer here because you're taking those key concepts but you're now making them operational, uh, which which seems like it's it's just the sort of instead of a second edition, sort of the the next generation of uh, of the four asking styles. Because um, just as you pointed out, for employers, I think many times, and this is this is sort of sad for um, the employers and for those who get hired, is that a lot of times employers hire development professionals um, a because they want money. Uh, and they, they think if they just hire one of these wizards, 
um, who are sort of these fundraising development people, uh, money will just come magically, you know, dropping into their lap, and they just kind of, you know, work their 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 magic. And of course, we know that's not true, and we 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 train on the fact that this is relationships. Um, that uh, there, there is an art and a science to this. But what you do in this book is you help employers actually understand that there is a wide spectrum of diversity in the kinds of development professionals that you can hire, um, and each and every one of those asking styles can be successful, uh, and that perhaps matching um, the, the correct asking style to the particular approach that the employer is looking for or the constituency that they serve or the kinds of people that they're likely to be in contact with can spell the difference between a really, really good fundraiser being an utter failure at one nonprofit and moving on to being a high-flying, you know, very successful leader at another organization. Exactly. I think that's so true. And, and I think when, when the, both the development officers themselves fail to recognize their own asking style and when their bosses fail to recognize it, it's really doing a disservice to the organization and to the development office. And it's setting both the development officer and the organization up for failure because they're expected to perform by, as you said, that cookie-cutter approach. Well, you've got to be able to go out and do this, and you've got to be able to do that. And I, I think looking at this, and you used the word earlier that we used in the book, Authenticity, I think, is so important that you can't be a successful fundraiser by trying to be somebody else. You might look at another fundraiser and say, oh, gosh, you know, he's really great or she's really great. And if I can just learn to, to speak like her and to act like him and to dress like her, I can be successful, too. I, I recall one time when I first moved to Las Vegas that somebody said, well, the key to being a successful fundraiser here is to be tall, good-looking, and blonde. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a crazy statement. You know, there's probably plenty of short, fat, bald people who are good fundraisers, too. But well, and I think I probably, I, I think I probably know a lot more short, fat, bald uh, fundraisers than I do tall, statuesque, blonde uh, fundraisers, but maybe maybe that's just the kind of organization that, that I'm used to working with. Um, but, but I, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right, though, that, you know, going back to, you know, this sort of being the anti-cookie cutter um, book, because I just think that a lot of employers, unless they're very, very seasoned, which you and I both know, is a very small minority of yeah. charitable organizations. And, and oftentimes you have to, you know, sort of put those in the classification of, you know, a university or a hospital or a very well-heeled museum or arts organization that, that has a more senior team because, uh, unfortunately, you drop below that, you know, maybe, you know, I would say maybe the top five or 7,000 charities in, in this country, and you're talking about nonprofit organizations that desperately need and desire to have a professional fundraiser on their team, um, but do not know how to actually manage them and do not know what it takes to be successful. They're approaching it from you know, probably a budget deficit situation. Uh, or sort of, again, that, that magical wizard that I'm going to hire. Uh, and then it, what they're doing is they're setting themselves up for failure because they don't have realistic expectations, but they're also setting the professional up for failure because of budget and, and things of that sort. They may be uh, attracting someone um, who is not very senior, someone who's new in their career, who wants to come and work hard, but knows nothing about asking styles and knows nothing about how to match or manage a fundraising program. Right, and I think that's a, a key point that you made there because I've worked with a lot of small organizations, probably more, more small ones, I know, than, than large ones. And in most cases, when they're getting ready to hire their first development officer, they start out by thinking, well, we've got to get somebody experienced because we don't know anything about fundraising, so we're counting on them. But yet, when they look at reality, they can't afford someone with a lot of years of experience. And I always tell them, while experience is great, and we certainly you know, look for that knowledge and experience, if a person really has passion for your organization, 
and is willing to learn fundraising. You know, it's it's an art, but it's also a science. And I think a lot of this can be learned over time if you come in with the right attitude. So if you come in there thinking, I can be successful, whatever my personality type is, and take the time and be willing to learn. I know when I first went into fundraising, I spent 11 years in the banking profession. And so I thought my business experience was good and it would help me a lot in fundraising, which it did. But I also recognized from day one that there was a lot I didn't know about the field of philanthropy. And and so I was kind of like a sponge and read every book I could get my hands on and went to every conference I could get my hands on and joined AFP and so I could get to conferences and meetings and workshops and network with other fundraisers. And I found that willingness to learn is important. And anybody, no matter what your style is, can have that commitment to the organization. They can have the integrity that's needed in this field and they can have that willingness to learn. So it doesn't matter. That kind of cuts across all the styles. And if you have that in a potential employee, I would look for that probably even more than I would look for years of experience because I think somebody's coming in with the right attitude, and no matter what their personality style, they can be successful. Exactly. and and, and But it does take thoughtful planning and open communication uh, for that kind of dialogue to take place. Uh, and I do think um, that that nonprofit organizations are often looking for that guidance to come from the development professional that should be very self-aware and should know who they are and how and in what kind of circumstances they can be most uh, successful. Because as your book points out, there are four asking styles and understanding who you are and where you fit is important. So we're going to come back after a very quick break um, with Linda Lysakowski, and she's going to actually name the four asking styles and give us an opportunity uh, to uh, learn a little bit more about ourselves in looking through the looking glass of four asking styles. And we'll be right back. Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? Or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? And we all have, because we're busy. And because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now. Introducing Virtru, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtru is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded, and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. Because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. And a program note, we've mentioned this a couple of times here on uh, today's show. This is our final live show of the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Uh, we will be going into our summer uh, hiatus uh, in the northern hemisphere and winter hiatus in the, the southern hemisphere. Uh, we will come back with a full complement of uh, scheduled shows uh, for you in uh, September. Uh, and we have a full show, full schedule already coming together, but I do want to make uh, a note. Our producer, Diane Peach, asked me to let everyone know, because this is a community effort, that if you have ideas for shows that you would like to be covered in uh, the fall or in early 2016, since we're pretty full for the fall, um, please email her at dpeach, uh, so that's Diane Peach, dpeach, like the fruit, 
at tedhart.com. And uh, she would like to have a conversation with you about those ideas of what topics you would like to have covered. Uh, And as you also know, we have at the top of the show our page one news. So even if you can't cover a one-hour show here on The Nonprofit Coach, but you have some very important news for the nonprofit sector, we'd also like to know about that and to time your appearance on page one news to correspond with the news that you have. So don't forget to email our producer, Diane Peach, at dpeach at tedhart.com. And with that, we look forward to being back in September. And uh, so remember, over this break period, uh, that's a great time to go to tedhart.com and catch up on literally hundreds of podcasts on virtually every topic available in the nonprofit sector. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Linda Lysakowski. Uh, She is the president of Linda Lysakowski, LLC. And our topic today uh, is Asking Styles, Harness Your Personal Fundraising Power, second edition uh, by Linda Lysakowski, a CFRE. And I'm referring to it as the anti-cookie-cutter book. Uh, So, uh, Linda Lysakowski, tell us, what are the four asking styles? Okay, Ted. Well, before I get into that, I want to just say something that you said in in page one um, about knowing your style before you even get into this. I had said that I thought there were two great audiences for this book. One is development officers who need to understand their personality styles, and the other one was employers that are hiring development people. But I just thought of a third audience that came to me as you were thinking about this and as you were talking about this, is um, those who are thinking about going into fundraising maybe aren't quite sure if they have what it takes. There are some great books out there to read. I always love Gerald Panis's Born to Raise. It talks about what it takes to be successful as a fundraiser. And I think my fundraising as a career is a good book to to look at if you're thinking about going into this. But I, I thought knowing you're asking sound before you even accept a development job might be a good idea because it would help you talk to the employer more if they say, well, you know, have you closed big deals? You know, if you're a realtor, have you sold multi-million dollar homes, that type of thing. Um, so I think there's a, a third group, and that's the people who are even thinking about fundraising. Um, when Andrea came up with these four well, styles... If I can, Linda, if I can just comment on that amazing... Uh, insight that you just brought to this, you know, imagine, you know, how many um, sort of false starts might have been averted uh, by uh, development professionals who read this book and understood where they fit and what they're best at before they accept a job that uh, that would save a lot of heartache out there and a lot of money too. Yeah, I think so. I, so I think that's a good point. I'm glad you kind of raised that issue. Um, but I think as far as personality styles, you know, some of us are junkies on this. We've done everything from Myers-Briggs to DISC and Enneagrams and all sorts of ways. And I think we all enjoy looking at our personality styles. But what I think has lacked a lot of times in investigating your personality style is putting it to use. And that was something you said earlier, too, that In this book, we don't want you to just identify what personality style you are, but to look at how you're going to use that personality style in every aspect of fundraising from identifying, cultivating, asking, and recognizing donors, but also to help you understand a little bit about the prospect style, the donor style, and the other people that you're going to be working with in fundraising because often successful fundraising depends on a team effort. So in this book, we talk about teaming up the different styles. But when Andrea came up with these four asking styles, she she kind of did a grid, and there's questions for you to ask, answer in this book to help determine your style. The first right off the bat in Chapter 2, we want you to determine what style you are and then to really focus on the chapter that explains your asking style 
and then go in and look at other asking styles and think about who on your team, volunteers, board members, your executive director, other people in your fundraising staff, and what personality types they fit into. So the best thing to do is to buy this book and have everybody that's involved in fundraising in your organization take it so you can see how you can best team up people and work together. But when she developed this style, she looked at two things. Are you analytic or are you intuitive? And are you an introvert and are you an extrovert? And I think sometimes there's a lot of misnomers. People go to a party and they see somebody who's, you know, really working the room and being very gregarious and they think, oh, that person is an extrovert. Well, it's not always how you react to people, other people. It's where you get your energy. Some people get their energy by being alone and thinking and meditating. Other people are energized by the people around them. And so it will ask you questions like that. And I realize that I'm much more energized by the people around me, so I would qualify as an extrovert, even though I'm very private about my own private life and don't usually share a lot about myself with other people, I do get energy from being around other people. Sometimes when I go out to teach a class, I'm feeling really rotten. And when I leave that class, I'm energized by the 10 or 30 or 50 or 300 people that were in that room. So that's one of the questions to ask yourself. And then are you analytic or intuitive? So Andrea put these these four grids together and determined there are people who are analytic, but they're also extroverted. There are people who are intuitive, but they're also extroverted. And then the third group is people who are analytic and introverted. And the fourth group is people who are intuitive, but introverted. But she realized very quickly that people wouldn't be able to respond too much. Like, when I'm an intuitive extrovert, I know Myers-Briggs does that. I'm an ENTJ, and um, even though I qualify as intuitive in some ways, I'm far much more analytical than I am intuitive. So she decided to come up with names which really, I think, make sense. And the analytic extroverts are rainmakers, and that's what I am, by the way. I consider myself, even though I have some intuitive feelings and, and qualities, I'm still more analytic. So I consider myself a rainmaker. And those are typically outgoing and objective people who work hard, plan well, and like to be in charge. And that's definitely um, fits me to a T. So that I discovered early on I was a rainmaker. And then the second style are intuitive extroverts, and she calls them the go-getters. They're gregarious, and they're big-picture thinkers who typically exude a lot of charm and energy. And then our third group, the intuitive extroverts, are called kindred spirits. And those are people who lead with their hearts and are inspired by stories of individual success. They really yeah, Linda, just, uh, I, I just want to make sure for those playing at home, uh, you meant to say intuitive introverts are the kindred spirits. Right, intuitive introverts. And then analytic introverts are mission controllers. Those are the detail-oriented planners who guard against all the things that might go wrong. This is a person who, when they're preparing to make a fundraising call, are going to say, oh, what am I going to say if, if the prospect answers this, and how am I going to deal with this objection? So all of these personality types, I think, really have a lot to offer the fundraising world, and especially when you team up the right pair to go out on a fundraising call, because I, I think all of these four styles have have something to say about uh, fundraising and really have a lot to offer. Uh, there's more I, to, to say about each of these, but typically kindred spirits, the intro, intuitive introverts, um, are they rely less on facts and data and much more on instincts and ideas. So although they're private in, 
and internally focused, they're thinking about ideas that are going to appeal to the prospect. And even though these kindred spirits sometimes hold hold themselves pretty close to the vest, they're driven to improve other people's lives. So they really think more with their heart. And I, I believe they probably are the kind of people that we often find raising money for social service organizations because they really want to make a difference in the world and they see these things as ways to make a more difference in the, in the world. Um, they follow their instincts and although sometimes they're kind of quiet, they they don't fail to articulate things that are really important to them. So I think the kindred spirits is... Um, their big question that they often ask is, what moves my heart? And these are the people who are usually drawn to work for organizations that they really feel passionate about. And I think that's a huge, huge advantage in fundraising. So even though they're not the rainmaker or the go-getter that we typically think of as being a successful fundraiser, they're going to be successful because they really believe in what they're doing or they wouldn't do it. They, these people probably are much more likely to move to another organization if they feel that that organization is something they're more passionate about. And, and what, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, oh, you're, you're going to, Yep. yeah. Um, the Rainmakers, as we said, are analytic extroverts. And even though their energy is focused outward in the world, um, they still rely a lot on information. They don't want to be in doubt. When they go in to make a prospect call, they want to have all the data lined up in a row so that they're prepared to answer any questions. If somebody says, well, what's the size of your budget and how many people did you serve? Those are the kind of people that have all that at their fingertips. And even though they're goal-oriented and they tend to be kind of competitive, um, they are inspired by other people and they get that energy from other people. One of the things that I, I think is true of Rainmakers, and I know this has always been true of me, is that they're comfortable talking to just about anyone. So you could send them to see a donor that maybe is a recovering addict and they're um, grateful to what this organization has done. You could send them to see the CEO of a major corporation or a wealthy philanthropist, and they treat everybody pretty much the same. They're willing to listen to everybody. I think they are much more adaptable um, to, to other types of personalities. So if you have maybe a difficult donor, the rainmaker is the person to send because they have a goal, they know how much money you're trying to raise, and they know how much they're going to ask from this donor before they go in there. They don't want to go in and find surprises. They want to come prepared with everything that's in place. Um, the mission controllers, on the other hand, are the analytic experts, and although they like their data to be measurable and Specific, their energy is more pointed inward, and they may be the ones who are not as eager to speak up when it comes to making an ask. So, yeah, maybe sending a mission controller with a rainmaker on a call is a good idea because even though this person might not be the one to ask, they'll be the one that when the donor comes up with a question, they'll have all the facts and figures right at the top of their head. So, they turn, tend to give much more detailed presentations. They might want to come with pie charts and um, you know, spreadsheets and and everything else, but they also are the people who need time to process and analyze the facts and figures. Um, the go-getters are probably the people that we most often think about when it comes to fundraisers because they're the intuitive experts, and they really accept information from any source, even their own imagination sometimes. Uh, and they're the people that can often plant the seed of a big idea in the right donor's mind. Um, they're more comfortable with the big ideas and probably won't have that detailed data to back up the big idea. They'll talk about, 
wouldn't it be wonderful to cure cancer? But they won't feel comfortable with saying, well, this is our research budget, and here's what our scientists are working on to cure cancer, and, you know, they found this out and that out. So I think they're not good with subtle ideas. They they use their creative energy to talk more about visions with a donor. So if you have the right asking style paired up with the right donor, you're going to be successful because I think they they kind of can play against each other and work together. I've seen oftentimes a group ask where maybe two people go out to make an ask of a donor, and one is great at spewing out all the facts and figures and everything else that, that this donor needs to hear, but maybe they absolutely can't get the words across their lips to ask for the gift from that donor or they're afraid to ask for enough money. So maybe having a go-getter in the room with them is right. appropriate because well, that's the person who can Linda, I, I want to I wanted to just say you're you're actually asking uh, starting to answer a very good question we just received from Justin uh, in Chicago, and he was asking pretty much that question, so I want, I want you to continue, but I want you to have the, the benefit of Justin's question. Um, what if you have multiple asking styles on the same staff? And I suppose, since we only have nine minutes left in the show, we should probably throw in there, what if it's uh, a mix of asking styles and includes volunteers? I, that's a perfect question, and that's why I wanted to add you know, the fact that board members and volunteers have asking styles. And I've seen this work really well where you do have different asking styles. Truthfully, I think a staff where everybody on the staff is a go-getter is probably not going to be nearly as successful if you have a staff of mixtures of styles and you send the right asker to the right donor. You know that old saying about the right asker for the right amount of money and the right cause at the right time. Um, and we suggest in this book that you actually have somebody coordinate the asking styles, which means, first of all, they all have to take the test and find out what asking style they are. But I think sending people on a joint call is really much more effective. And I've seen cases where somebody can spew the facts and figures, but they can't make the ask. And also somebody that can make the ask, but they're so busy talking or thinking about what they're going to say next that they're missing important cues that the donor is giving. So I think having these different styles work together and debrief after their call, you'll probably find out that the go-getters and maybe the rainmakers will have totally missed a clue that a donor sent that a mission controller is going to pick up on because they're listening more than they are talking. So I think that's great to have a, a mix of styles. The one word of caution, I think, is that you have to be careful when you're mixing styles. If you have the same people together, sometimes you really hurt yourself. For example, um, you know, you might have a, a rainmaker and uh, or two two extroverts on a call together. And they may be competing with each other on the donor. Maybe you have a rainmaker and a go-getter. And they're both great at talking to the donor but not listening so much. Where um, maybe a rainmaker plus a kindred spirit or a mission controller and a go-getter are a more appropriate style because you have the introvert, extrovert, and you have the analytic versus the um, intuitive person. So they complement each other. And I think when you're planning your teams to make calls, you really need to have these asking styles done before you plan who's going to go out and call on a donor. And you also, even though you're not going to hand this book to your donors and say, tell me what style you are so we know who to send to see you, that would probably be inappropriate. But based on what you do know about your donor from your research and your past experience, um, we do have a section in the book that talks about, you know, if your donor, for example, if their donor makes decisions by gathering as much information as possible and 
talk to different kinds of people with apparent ease, um, likes clear, well-documented information, and is results-driven, it's a pretty good guess. Your donor is probably a rainmaker. And I had a donor like this. He was the head of a big company, and he was one of those people that um, he could talk to anybody with equal ease. He negotiated with vendors and with top CEOs, but at Easter time he dressed up as Easter Bunny and hopped around and went around and gave out Easter eggs and candy to kids. So, I mean, this is a, the kind of guy who you think, oh, this is a rainmaker. So it will help you determine what you need to do to deal with that rainmaker or that go-getter or that kindred spirit or that mission controller. It may It's never a totally exact science. But I think the more you study your donors and your other staff people and your board and your volunteers, the better you can prepare yourself for a successful ask with anybody because you're matching up the right personalities and giving the right information and you know talking and listening appropriately in your in the book, you say your task as a fundraiser is not to convince someone who's not interested that they should be. It's to discover people's interests and if their interests are truly a good match, to work with them so that they can make the world a better place through your organization. In doing that, you go on, I think, to want people to understand that it's by being authentic and by being self-aware um, that you can do the best job by way of the donors and your organization by being that matchmaker. Exactly, and I think that's so true that the, the word authenticity is probably, in addition to I like your term of a cookie-cutter breaker, but I think authenticity is really what this book is about, that we're not telling you that you have to try to develop the qualities of a go-getter or a rainmaker or a mission controller but if you lack those qualities, and this is especially true for the head of a development office that maybe is hiring people, if maybe you're the only development officer and you're ready now to hire your first assistant, um, I have always tried to hire people who complement my qualities. So if I'm not good at, at, at analytics, for example, I would hire somebody who is good at analytics so we have a good team going rather than try to hire somebody that's more like ourselves. And I think that's our natural tendency is we want to hire people who have the same personality qualities we have because if we've been successful in fundraising, certainly they're going to be too. And I think that's one of the biggest helps that this book can teach you is how to hire to your weaknesses and to build on your own strengths and that to recognize that everybody has strengths that can be effective in fundraising. And isn't this also a story of um, allowing the successful fundraiser to move beyond transactional to be transformative and oh, to absolutely. see philanthropy as as that kind of mechanism as opposed to just a paycheck? Yeah, because to do transactional fundraising, you probably don't need to worry much about this. But I don't think any of us want to get stuck in, you know, if you're doing transactional fundraising, writing grants and doing um, direct mail and things that maybe you don't have a lot of personal interaction, you probably don't need to worry so much about this. But I don't think any of us want to get stuck in that rut forever. We really want to move to that transformational fundraising yeah. in a way. From well, there, the there's a time and place for that kind of fundraising, and those of us uh, here on the Nonprofit coaches, we've talked about the pyramid of giving um, and, you know, sort of training and, and honing the philanthropic uh, prospects of a donor. All of that has a time and place. But I think right. I think you're talking about um, becoming uh, a, a development professional as opposed to being a fundraiser, uh, that, right. that self-awareness is, uh, is really at the heart and soul of being successful. And I think the one important thing that, that that comes to mind when you're taking the test for this, don't give the answers that you think are the right answers. Well, if I want to be a good fundraiser, I have to answer 
this. Answer honestly about your authentic self and really find out what is your personality and then read how you can use that personality to your advantage and to the advantage of your organization. Well, you can't help give your philanthropist a voice if you don't know your own. Absolutely. So we only have a minute left. We only have a minute left, Linda. Uh, I can talk for you with you forever. Uh, but I do want to make sure that my listeners know. That power went so fast, I can't believe it. <laughs> I know, but uh, in the in the final few seconds that we have, I want to make sure that my listeners know how to reach you. How can they reach Linda Lysakowski? Okay, it's Linda at com, And, of course, I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and Pinterest and all those other social media things. The book, by the way, will be out on August 5th is our anticipated publication date. So if you want to follow either my website, which is com, or the Charity Channel Press website, which is charitychannel.com, you can watch for announcements of the second edition. The first edition of the book is still available until the second edition comes out, but um, August 5th is our date. Linda, i got to say goodbye. This is the end of the show. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thanks again, Ted. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.